Chapter One of The Secret Tomb. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Campbell Shelp. The Secret Tomb by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter One The Chateau de Roberet. Under a sky heavy with stars and faintly brighter for a low hanging sickle moon, the gypsy caravan slept on the turf by the roadside, its shutters closed, its shafts stretched out like arms. In the shadow of the ditch nearby, a stertorous horse was snoring. Far away above the black crests of the hills, a bright streak of sky announced the coming of the dawn. A church clock struck four. Here and there a bird awoke and began to sing. The air was soft and warm. Abruptly, from the interior of the caravan, a woman's voice cried, "'Saint Quentin! Saint Quentin!' A head was thrust out of the little window which looked out over the box under the projecting roof. "'A nice thing, this! I thought as much! The rascal has decamped in the night! The little beast! Nice discipline this is!' Other voices joined in the grumbling. Two or three minutes passed, then the door in the back of the caravan opened, and a shadowy figure descended the five steps of the ladder, while two tousled heads appeared at the side window. "'Dorothy, where are you going?' "'To look for St. Quentin,' replied the shadowy figure. "'But he came back with you from your walk last night, and I saw him settle down on the box. "'You can see that he isn't there any longer, Castor. "'Where is he?' patience i'm going to bring him back to you by the ears but two small boys in their shirts came tumbling down the steps of the caravan and implored her no no mummy dorothy don't you go away by yourself in the night time it's dangerous what are you making a fuss about pollux dangerous it's no business of yours she smacked them and kicked them gently and brought them quickly back to the caravan into which they climbed there, sitting on the stool, she took their two heads, pressed them against her face, and kissed them tenderly. No ill-feeling, children. Danger? I'll find St. Quentin in half an hour from now. A nice business. St. Quentin, a beggar who isn't sixteen. While Castor and Pollux are twenty, taken together, retorted Dorothy, but what does he want to go traipsing about like this at night for? And it isn't the first time either. Where is it he makes these expeditions to? To snare rabbits, she said. There's nothing wrong in it, you see. But come, there's been talk enough about it. Go to bye-bye again, boys. And above all, Castor and Pollux, don't fight. Do you hear? And no noise. The captain's asleep, and he doesn't like to be disturbed the captain doesn't. She took herself off, jumped over the ditch, crossed the meadow, in which her feet splashed up the water in the puddles, and gained a path which wound through a copse of young trees which only reached her shoulders. Twice already, the evening before, strolling with her comrade St. Quentin, she had followed this half-formed path, so that she went briskly forward without hesitating. She crossed two roads, came to a stream, the white pebbly bottom of which gleamed under the quiet water, stepped into it, and walked up it against the current, as if she wished to hide her tracks. 
and when the first light of day began to invest objects with clear shapes, darted forth afresh through the woods, light, graceful, not very tall, her legs bare below a very short skirt, from which streamed behind her a flutter of many-colored ribbons. She ran with effortless ease, sure-footed, with never a chance of spraining an ankle, over the dead leaves, among the flowers of early spring, lilies of the valley, violet anemones, or white narcissi. Her black hair, not very long, was divided into two heavy masses which flapped like two wings. Her smiling face, parted lips, dilated nostrils, her half-closed eyes proclaimed all her delight in her swift course through the fresh air of the morning. Her neck, long and flexible, rose from a blouse of grey linen, closed by a kerchief of orange silk. She looked to be fifteen or sixteen years old. The wood came to an end. A valley lay before her, sunk between two walls of rock and turning off abruptly. Dorothy stopped short. She had reached her goal. Facing her, on a pedestal of granite, cleanly cut down, and not more than a hundred feet in diameter, rose the main building of a chateau, which, though it lacked grandeur of style itself, yet drew from its position and the impressive nature of its construction an air of being a seigneurial residence. To the right and left the valley, narrowed to two ravines, appeared to envelop it like an old-time moat, but in front of Dorothy the full breadth of the valley formed a slightly undulating glacis, strewn with boulders and traversed by hedges of briar, which ended at the foot of the almost vertical cliff of the granite pedestal. A quarter to five striking, murmured the young girl. St. Quentin won't be long. She crouched down behind the enormous trunk of an uprooted tree and watched with unwinking eyes the line of demarcation between the chateau itself and its rocky base. A narrow shelf of rock lengthened this line, running below the windows of the ground floor, and there was a spot in this exiguous cornice at which there came to an end a slanting fissure in the face of the cliff, very narrow, something of the nature of a crevice in the face of a wall. The evening before, during their walk, St. Quentin had said, his finger pointing at the fissure, "'Those people believe themselves to be perfectly secure, and yet—' Nothing could be easier than to haul one's self up along that crack to one of the windows. Look, there's one which is actually half open, the window of some pantry. Dorothy had no doubt whatever that the idea of climbing the granite pedestal had gripped St. Quentin and that that very night he had stolen away to attempt it. What had become of him after the attempt? Had there not been someone in the room he had entered? Knowing nothing of the place he was exploring, nor of the dwellers in it, had he not let himself be taken? Or was he merely waiting for the break of day? She was greatly troubled, for all that she could see no sign of a path along the ravine. Some countryman might come along at the very moment at which St. Quentin took the risk of making his descent, a far more difficult business than climbing up. Of a sudden she quivered. One might have said that in thinking of this mischance she had brought it on them. She heard the sound of heavy footfalls coming along the ravine and making for its main entrance. She buried herself among the roots of the tree and they hid her. A man came in sight. He was wearing a long blouse. His face was encircled and hidden by a grey muffler. Old, furred gloves covered his hands. He carried a gun on his arm, a mattock over his shoulder. 
she thought that he must be a sportsman or rather a poacher for he walked with an uneasy air looking carefully about him like one who feared to be seen and who was carefully changing his usual bearing but he came to a standstill near the wall fifty or sixty yards from the spot at which st quentin had made the ascent and studied the ground turning over some flat stones and bending down over them at last he made up his mind and seizing one of these slabs by its narrower end he raised it and set it up on end in such a manner that it was balanced after the fashion of a cromlech so doing he uncovered a hole which had been hollowed out in the centre of the deep imprint left by the slab then he took his mattock and set about enlarging it removing the earth very quietly evidently taking great care to make no noise a few minutes more slipped away then the inevitable event which dorothy had at once desired and feared took place the window of the chateau through which st quentin had climbed the night before opened and there appeared a long body clad in a long black coat its head covered with a high hat which even at that distance were plainly shiny dirty and patched squeezed flat against the wall st quentin lowered himself from the window and succeeded in setting his two feet on the rocky shelf on the instant dorothy who was at the back of the man in the blouse was on the point of rising and making a warning signal to her comrade the movement was useless the man had perceived what looked to be a black devil clinging to the face of the cliff and dropping his mattock he slipped into the hole for his part st quentin absorbed in his job of getting down was paying no attention to what was going on below him and could only have seen it by turning round which was practically impossible uncoiling a rope which he had without a doubt picked up in the mansion he ran it round a pillar of the balcony of the window in such a fashion that the two ends hung down the face of the cliff in equal distance with the help of this double rope the descent presented no difficulty without losing a second dorothy uneasy at being no longer able to see the man in a blouse sprang from her hiding-place and raced to the hole as she got a view of it she smothered a cry at the bottom of the hole as at the bottom of a trench the man resting the barrel of his gun on the rampart of earth he had thrown up was about to take deliberate aim at the unconscious climber call out warned st quentin that was to precipitate the event to make her presence known and find herself engaged in an unequal struggle with an armed adversary but do something she must up there st quentin was availing himself of the fissure in the face of the cliff for all the world as if he were descending the shaft of a chimney the whole of him stuck out a black and lean silhouette his high hat had been crushed down concertina fashion right on to his ears the man set the butt of his gun against his shoulder and took aim dorothy leapt forward and flung herself at the stone which stood up behind him and with the impetus of her spring and all her weight behind her outstretched hands shoved it it was badly balanced gave at the shock and toppled over closing the excavation like a trap-door of stone crushing the gun and imprisoning the man in the blouse the young girl got just a glimpse of his head as it bent and his shoulders as they were thrust down into the hole she thought that the attack was only postponed that the enemy would lose no time in getting out of his grave and dashed at full speed to the bottom of the fissure at which she arrived at the same time as st quentin quick quick she cried 
we must bolt in a flurry he dragged down the rope by one of the ends mumbling as he did so what's up what do you want how did you know i was here she gripped his arm and tugged at it bolt idiot they've seen you they were going to take a shot at you quick they'll be after us what's that be after us who a queer-looking beggar disguised as a peasant he's in a hole over yonder he was going to shoot you like a partridge when i tumbled the slab onto the top of him but do as i tell you idiot and bring the rope with you you mustn't leave any traces she turned and bolted he followed her they reached the end of the valley before the slab was raised and without exchanging a word took cover in the wood twenty minutes later they entered the stream and did not leave it till they could emerge on to a bank of pebbles on which their feet could leave no print st quentin was off again like an arrow but dorothy stopped short suddenly shaken by a spasm of laughter which bent her double what is it he said what's the matter with you she could not answer she was convulsed her hands pressed against her ribs her face scarlet her teeth small regular whitely gleaming teeth bared at last she managed to stutter you you your high high hat that b -b black coat your b -b bare feet it's t -t too funny where did you sneak that disguise from goodness what a sight you are her laughter rang out young and fresh on the silence in which the leaves were fluttering facing her saint quentin an awkward stripling who had outgrown his strength with his face too pale his hair too fair his ears sticking out but with admirable very kindly black eyes gazed smiling at the young girl delighted by this diversion which seemed to be turning aside from him the outburst of wrath he was expecting of a sudden indeed she fell upon him attacking him with thumps and reproaches but in a half-hearted fashion with little bursts of laughter which robbed the chastisement of its sting wretched rogue you've been stealing again have you you're no longer satisfied with your salary as acrobat aren't you my fine fellow <laughs> you must still prank money or jewels to keep yourself in high hats must you what have you got looter eh tell me by dint of striking and laughing she had soothed her righteous indignation she set out again and saint quentin thoroughly abashed stammered tell you what's the good of telling you you've guessed everything as usual as a matter of fact i did get in through that window last evening it was a pantry at the end of a corridor which led to the ground-floor rooms not a soul about the family was at dinner a servant's staircase led me up into another passage which ran round the house with the doors of all the rooms opening into it i went through them all nothing that is to say pictures and other things too big to carry away then i hid myself in a closet from which i could see into a little sitting-room next to the prettiest bedroom they danced till late then came upstairs fashionable people i saw them through a peephole in the door the ladies decolletes the gentlemen in evening dress at last one of the ladies went into the bourgeois she put her jewels into a jewel-box and the jewel-box into a small safe saying out loud as she opened it the three letters of the combination of the lock r o b so that when she went to bed 
all I had to do was to make use of them. After that, I waited for daylight. I wasn't going to chance stumbling about in the dark. Let's see what you've got, she commanded. He opened his hand and disclosed on the palm of it two earrings, set with sapphires. She took them and looked at them. Her face changed, her eyes sparkled. She murmured in quite a different voice. How lovely they are, sapphires! The sky is sometimes like that. At night, that dark blue full of light. At the moment they were crossing a piece of land on which stood a large scarecrow, simply clad in a pair of trousers. On one of the cross-sticks which served it for arms hung a jacket. It was the jacket of St. Quentin. He had hung it there the evening before, and in order to render himself unrecognizable, had borrowed the scarecrow's long coat and high hat. He took off that long coat, buttoned it over the plaster bosom of the scarecrow, and replaced the hat. Then he slipped on his jacket and rejoined Dorothy. She was still looking at the sapphires with an air of admiration. He bent over them and said, "'Keep them, Dorothy. You know quite well that I'm not really a thief, and that I only got them for you, that you might have the pleasure of looking at them and touching them. It often goes to my heart to see you running about in that beggarly get-up, to think of you dancing on the tight-rope, you who ought to live in luxury.' Ah, to think of all I'd do for you if you'd let me. She raised her head, looked into his eyes, and said, Would you really do anything for me? Anything, Dorothy. Well, then be honest, St. Quentin. They set out again, and the young girl continued, Be honest, St. Quentin. That's all I ask of you. You and the other boys of the caravan. I've adopted you because, like me, you're war orphans, and for the last two years we have wandered together along the high roads, happy rather than miserable, getting our fun, and on the whole, eating when we're hungry. But we must come to an understanding. I only like what is clean and straight, and as clear as a ray of sunlight. Are you like me? This is the third time you've stolen to give me pleasure. Is this the last time? If it is, I pardon it. If it isn't, it's good-bye. She spoke very seriously, emphasizing each phrase by a toss of the head which made the two wings of her hair flap. Overwhelmed, St. Quentin said imploringly, "'Don't you want to have anything more to do with me?' "'Yes, but swear you won't do it again.' "'I swear. I won't. "'Then we won't say anything more about it. "'I feel that you mean what you say. "'Take back these jewels.' You can hide them in the big basket under the caravan. Next week you will send them back by post. It's the Chateau de Chagny, isn't it? Yes, and I saw the lady's name on one of her bandboxes. She's the Comtesse de Chagny. They went on hand in hand. Twice they hid themselves to avoid meeting peasants, and at last, after several detours, they reached the neighborhood of the caravan. Listen, said St. Quentin, pausing to listen himself. Yes, that's what it is. Castor and Pollux fighting as usual, the rascals. He dashed towards the sound. St. Quentin, cried the young girl. I forbid you to hit them. You hit them often enough. Yes, but they like me to hit them. At the approach of St. Quentin, the two boys who were fighting a duel with wooden swords turned from one another to face the common enemy, howling, 
dorothy mummy dorothy stop saint quentin he's a beast help there followed a distribution of cuffs bursts of laughter and hugs dorothy it's my turn to be hugged dorothy it's my turn to be smacked but the young girl said in a scolding voice and the captain i'm sure you've gone and woke him up the captain he's sleeping like a sapper declared pollux just listen to his snoring by the side of the road the two urchins had lit a fire of wood the pot suspended from an iron tripod was boiling the four of them ate a steaming thick soup bread and cheese and drank a cup of coffee dorothy did not budge from her stool her three companions would not have permitted it it was rather which of the three should rise to serve her all of them attentive to her wants eager jealous of one another even aggressive towards one another the battles of castor and pollux were always started by the fact that she had shown favour to one or the other the two urchins stout and chubby dressed alike in pants a shirt and jacket when one least expected it and for all that they were as fond as one another as brothers fell upon one another with ferocious violence because the young girl had spoken too kindly to one or delighted the other with a too affectionate look as for saint quentin he cordially detested them when dorothy fondled them he could have cheerfully wrung their necks never would she hug him he had to content himself with good comradeship trusting and affectionate which only showed itself in a friendly handshake or a pleasant smile the stripling delighted in them as the only reward which a poor devil like him could possibly deserve st quentin was one of those who love with selfless devotion the arithmetic lesson now was dorothy's order and you st quentin go to sleep for an hour on the box castor brought his arithmetic pollux displayed his copy-book the arithmetic lesson was followed by a lecture delivered by dorothy on the merovingian kings then by a lecture on astronomy the two children listened with almost impassioned attention and saint quentin on the box took good care not to go to sleep in teaching dorothy gave full play to her lively fancy in a fashion which diverted her pupils and never allowed them to grow weary she had an air of learning herself whatever she chanced to be teaching and her discourse delivered in a very gentle voice revealed a considerable knowledge and understanding and the suppleness of a practical intelligence at ten o'clock the young girl gave the order to harness the horse the journey to the next town was a long one and they had to arrive in time to secure the best place in front of the town hall and the captain he hasn't had breakfast cried castor all the better said she the captain always eats too much it will give his stomach a rest besides if anyone wakes him he's always in a frightful temper let him sleep on they set out the caravan moved along at the gentle pace of one-eyed magpie a lean old mare but still strong and willing they called her one-eyed magpie because she had a piebald coat and had lost an eye heavy perched on two high wheels rockling jingling like old iron loaded with boxes pots and pans steps barrels and ropes the caravan had recently been repainted on both sides it bore the pompous inscription dorothy's circus manager's carriage which led one to believe that a file of wagons and vehicles was following at some distance with the staff the properties the baggage and the wild beasts st quentin 
whip in hand, walked at the head of the caravan. Dorothy, with the two small boys at her side, gathered flowers from the banks, sang choruses of marching songs with them, or told them stories. But at the end of half an hour, in the middle of some crossroads, she gave the order, Halt! What is it? asked St. Quentin, seeing that she was reading the directions on a signpost. Look, she said. There's no need to look. It's straight on. I looked it up on our map. Look, she repeated. Shagney, a mile and a half. Quite so, it's the village of our chateau of yesterday. Only to get to it, we made a short cut through the woods. Shagney, a mile and a half. Chateau de Roboray. She appeared to be troubled, and in a low voice she murmured again, Roboray, Roboray. Doubtless that's the proper name of the chateau, hazarded St. Quentin. What difference can it make to you? None, none. But you look as if it made no end of a difference. No, it's just a coincidence. In what way? With regard to the name of Roboray. Well? Well, it's a word which was impressed on my memory, a word which was uttered in circumstances. What circumstances, Dorothy? She explained slowly with a thoughtful air. Think a minute, St. Quentin. I told you that my father died of his wounds at the beginning of the war in a hospital near Chartres. I had been summoned, but I did not arrive in time. But two wounded men, who occupied the beds next to his in the ward, told me that during his last hours he never stopped repeating the same words again and again. Robberay, robberay. It came like litany, unceasingly, and as if it weighed on his mind. Even when he was dying, he still uttered the word, robberay, robberay. Yes, said St. Quentin. I remember. You did tell me about it. Ever since then, I have been asking myself what it meant, and by what memory my poor father was obsessed at the time of his death. It was, apparently, more than an obsession. It was terror, a dread. Why? I have never been able to find the explanation of it. So now you understand, St. Quentin, on seeing this name, written there, staring me in the face, on learning that there was a chateau of that name, St. Quentin was frightened. You never mean to go there, do you? Why not? It's madness, Dorothy. The young girl was silent, considering. But St. Quentin felt sure that she had not abandoned this unprecedented design. He was seeking for arguments to dissuade her when Castor and Pollux came running up. Three caravans are coming along! They issued on the instant, one after the other in single file, from a sunken lane, which opened onto the crossroads and took the road to Robberay. They were an Aunt Sally, a rifle range, and a tortoise merry-go-round. As he passed in front of Dorothy and St. Quentin, one of the men of rifle range called to them. "'Are you coming along, too?' "'Where to?' said Dorothy. "'To the chateau. There's the village fete in the grounds. Shall I keep a pitch for you?' "'Right, and thanks very much,' replied the young girl." The caravans went on their way. "'What's the matter, St. Quentin?' said Dorothy. He was looking paler than usual. "'What's the matter with you?' she repeated. "'Your lips are twitching and you are turning green,' he stammered. "'The p-p-police,' 
from the same sunken lane two horsemen came into the crossroads they rode on in front of the little party you see said dorothy smiling they're not taking any notice of us no but they're going to the chateau of course they are there's a fete there and two policemen have to be present always supposing that they haven't discovered the disappearance of the earrings and telephoned to the nearest police station he groaned it isn't likely the lady will only discover it tonight when she dresses for dinner all the same don't let's go there implored the unhappy stripling it's simply walking into the trap besides there's that man the man in the hole oh he dug his own grave she said and laughed suppose he's there suppose he recognizes me you were disguised all they could do would be to arrest the scarecrow in the tall hat and suppose they've already laid an information against me if they searched us they'd find the earrings drop them in some bushes in the park when we get there i'll tell the people of the chateau their fortunes and thanks to me the lady will recover her earrings our fortunes are made but if by any chance rubbish it would amuse me to go and see what is going on at the chateau which is named robbery so i'm going yes but i'm afraid afraid for you as well then stay away he shrugged his shoulders we'll chance it he said and cracked his whip end of chapter one